This morning we have Matt Kay, who's going to be God's Word uh, with us. Matt comes from Emmaus. Um, he works with crew, the church movements. Uh, he also works with uh, Nate Sims. He's been here, he has preached here once before, and he also has been here a number of Wednesday evenings. So he's here with his wife, Erin. Three kids, Caleb, who's 14, Chloe, who's 12, Levi, who's 8, and his mother, Lydia, are all here, all sitting in the back. So, Matt, bring us, uh, bring us God's word this morning. Amen. Thank you. Well, good morning. Will you pray with me? Uh, Heavenly Father, God, we thank you uh, for bringing us into your presence through the blood of Jesus and through his resurrection and your outpoured spirit. Lord, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. Lord, thank you for being our rock and our redeemer. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Happy first Sunday of Advent. Uh, it's a joy to be with you again um, and uh, worshiping Jesus together. Uh, I don't know what your Christmas traditions are like, but have you noticed when some people do Christmas real, real early? Um, you know, we have a pretty hard tradition in our home of Christmas music starts Thanksgiving night, and it starts right away, too. We're all about it, but we don't try to do it before Thanksgiving. So sometimes when Christmas is happening somewhere, Christmas music is happening somewhere before Thanksgiving, I just tend to take strong notice of it. It's like, wow, that's pretty early. A few days before Thanksgiving is quite early. A couple of weeks is real early. Uh, my wife and I were in San Antonio a couple weeks ago for our Crew Church Movement's National Staff Conference, and we were at this really great Mexican restaurant called Mi Tierra, and I mean, wonderful, like atmosphere, vibe, mariachi singers, um, beautiful Mexican restaurant. Now, this was early November, and we're on our way out of the building, and you couldn't not see it. It's this huge nativity set. Now, that's early. Early November, huge nativity set, but you're drawn in by it. And you know in some traditions, you don't put the figure of the Christ child in the manger until when? Christmas Day, right? You leave the manger open until Christmas because all of this signifies something, right? And so I want to put that picture before you this morning of a nativity set with all the characters there waiting. You see Mary there waiting, and Joseph is there waiting. And you see shepherds there waiting. And, and all of the people that are in your... How many of you have a nativity set in your home? Okay. And you probably have set it up already or you're about to, right? Hopefully, by the grace of God, this sermon will be helpful for you to just remember as you look at your nativity set what we're all waiting for too, right? And so as you look at all the characters in your nativity set, you're seeing the people who, who received the word of God that came to them and responded yes to his invitation, you see, Mary, fear not, Mary, there's going to be a child that's conceived by the Holy Spirit. We just spoke it in the Apostles' Creed, in you. Fear not. He's going to be called holy. He's going to be the Son of God, right? And Mary's response is, let it be to me according to your word. She received and responded to the word of God. So she's in your nativity set. The word that came to Joseph was, Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, the child that's conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And so he received and responded to the word of God. And that's why he's in your nativity set. The angels received and responded to the word of God. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you 
is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And they received and responded to the word of God that came to them, saying to one another, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this great thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And that's why they're in your nativity set. And then you have the wise men, the magi, who we'll talk about more in depth because of the passage that we're reading, but they responded to the invitation too. The invitation through uh, a star. They had seen that the king had come and they wanted to go over to worship him. But I want to pose, before we get into talking about the wise men from Matthew chapter 2, I want to pose a question for you is, is, have you ever considered who's not in your nativity set? Have you noticed there are certain people that are part of the story, but they're not in your nativity set? Have you noticed this Christmas that you don't have a King Herod figure in your nativity set? This one is even more tragic. Have you noticed that you haven't found one of the scribes and the religious leaders of the day? The chief priests and the scribes were read about in this text. But have you noticed that even though they're the Bible scholars and Bible teachers of the day, that they're not in your nativity set? It's striking. See, the the nativity set shows us a preview of what it's going to look like at the end. All the people who responded and received the word of God and said yes to Jesus gathered around the manger in your nativity set. One day it'll be every tribe, tongue, and nation, people redeemed from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation gathered around his throne. The nativity set is like a mini preview of that day. Amen? And so it invites us. And just as in the nativity set, you see figures of people looking at an empty manger awaiting the advent, the coming, the arrival of Jesus into the world for the first time. We who are on the back end of his cross and his resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of the Father, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and his second coming to return to judge the living and the dead, we're looking and watching and waiting like the people in your nativity set. Come, Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. And so we're waiting. And so who isn't there in your nativity set? In Matthew chapter 2, I'd like us to take a brief look at the passage that we read about. By God's grace, maybe we can draw out a few things that are meaningful for us to consider as we enter into this Advent season. If the invitation to us this Advent is, oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord, what, if anything, then holds you back from receiving that invitation? Daily, moment by moment, living continually in his presence. What, if anything, holds you back from receiving that invitation? And what is it about Jesus Christ, his beauty, his majesty, his love, that continually draws his people into this posture that we see in the wise men who travel hundreds of miles to worship Christ the Lord? At the center of this morning's passage of Scripture is a passage from the Old Testament, Micah chapter 5, about the coming of the Messiah. It reads like this, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd. Say that with me. Shepherd. He will shepherd my people Israel. It's a beautiful word. The ruler who will shepherd God's people Israel. It's a word that implies one who feeds his flock, tends to his flock, 
cares for his flock, one who nourishes and cherishes and serves for the supply and the well-being of God's people to guide them and to guard them from danger along their journey. And Jesus is for sure that kind of king. Amen? Jesus is that kind of king. We could go to a thousand places of scripture, but one that's been landing with me lately, Psalm 72, points to the kind of rule and reign that Jesus brings. Listen to just a few verses. Psalm 72, 5. May they fear you while the sun endures, as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass. Don't you love the way that sounds? May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. Praise God for the leadership of our King, Jesus Christ. In other words, people flourish under his leadership. He's the King of the Jews, the good shepherd who makes us lie down in green pastures, leads us beside still waters, restores our souls, leads us in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. King Herod's leadership is nothing like that. In contrast to Jesus, Herod is actually an imposter who knows only how to look out for himself. Who is King Herod? What does history tell us about him? Well, ironically, Herod went by the title King of the Jews. Ironic, isn't it? When people show up to your room and they say, where's the king of the Jews? He's like, I'm right here. No, you're not the king of the Jews, sir. He went by the title king of the Jews. The Roman government actually gave him that title when they deposed a Jewish dynasty called the Hasmoneans. So there was a Jewish dynasty that was ruling over uh, Judea and Jerusalem at the time. They were called the Hasmoneans. And the Romans wanted them out, so they deposed that dynasty and put Herod up in their place. And so they gave Herod this title, King of the Jews, and he liked the title. Uh, but even though he's ruling as the so-called King of the Jews, there are still members of the Hasmonean family that are alive and well, even as he's reigning and leading. And do you think they like Herod's leadership? No. As a matter of fact, Herod is always suspicious of their family, and somebody taking him out and taking his throne from him. And he clings so tightly to his throne and his title and his leadership. He doesn't want to lose it. He treasures it. It's the center of his life. And so the Hasmoneans resent him for it. Herod tries to kind of win some favor over. He is married to one of the Hasmoneans, so his wife is of the Hasmonean line, and hopefully Perhaps he thinks it can bolster up his credibility before the people that he leads. But after a while, he becomes to get anxious and fearful from losing the thing that he loves and cherishes most, which is his throne. And in his anxiety and in his constant fear that somebody's going to take what's precious from him, he starts to get violent. And so in his anxious fears of losing his power... He begins to get rid of the leading Hasmonean survivors one by one, tragically including his own wife. And then he has two sons from that wife. He eventually gets rid of them too. And then on top of that, he has a third son from another wife. 
And his suspicions of that kid taking the throne from him starts to freak him out. And just three days before he dies, he takes out that child too. He's so scared of losing title, throne, authority, power, and control that he's got to hedge everything around to just stay in power. And so here's a man who calls himself king of the Jews, but he's not. He's an imposter, and he's scared to death of losing what he treasures most. So when we hear about Herod in chapter 2, the Bible tells us that he's troubled when he hears the news of the true king of the Jews coming into the world. Verse 3 tells us, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. The word that's translated in your Bibles, troubled, is a word that implies he was struck with fear, struck with dread. The news of Christ coming into the world is good news of great joy for all people. Amen? Amen. But for the Herods of the world, it doesn't come to them as good news because they feel like it's a threat to their own power and control and to their own throne. And so Herod doesn't receive it as good news. The idol and the treasure of his heart is threatened by the mere presence of a true king of the Jews. And now Herod has to maneuver and manipulate everything in in his life to make sure this doesn't happen. And so as you continue to read the passage, we find all these symptoms of Herod's lust for power. He uses people, he lies to people, and he eventually resorts to violence to protect his throne. And so upon hearing the news, Herod calls in the religious leaders, chief priests and scribes of the people, and he asks them, where is your Messiah supposed to be born? And so they show him the, ch- the passage of the Bible, Michael chapter, fr- chapter 5. And what's interesting is he's acting interested in the scriptures, but he doesn't want to hear the Bible because he wants God or he wants to know God. He only brings in the Bible study to benefit his own interests. He doesn't just use religious leaders. He also tries to manipulate and use the wise men themselves too. And so in verse 7, he sets up a secret meeting with the wise men to find out when the star had appeared, probably to get a sense of how long the child has been around, how old the child might be, whether or not the family might still be in Bethlehem so he can catch up to them and catch them. And so he tells the wise men to go and search diligently for the child and to bring him word so that he too may come and worship Jesus. But again, he doesn't really want to join the wise men in their worship of Jesus. Herod is lying, and he's only using them so that he could find the child to kill him. And so the lying, the manipulating, the using people, and the eventual violence that he carries out on all the boys under two years of age in Bethlehem is all in service of protecting what he treasures most, which is himself, his throne, his power, his control. Herod's got a problem, doesn't he? And the chief priests and the scribes are held back from worshiping Jesus as well, and they have a problem of their own. If for Herod, it's a lust for power and control that keep him from worshiping Jesus. The religious leaders, their problem is they're held back by their straight-up indifference to Jesus. And so when Herod hears about the true king of the Jews... The scriptures tell us that he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people, all of them. Now think about this group of people in the room, Bible scholars, 
religious leaders, worship leaders in the room, and he inquires of them where the Messiah is supposed to be born. And they know their Bible so well that they can open up to chapter and verse. They show you their copy, and they say, hey, look, it's right here in Micah chapter 5, in the first few verses, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And this is the tragedy of the scribes and the religious leaders who don't make it into your nativity set. They knew their Bible so well that they knew how to point someone else to where they can find Jesus, but they don't go to Bethlehem themselves to worship the newborn king. Isn't that tragic? I can point you to where you can go to find Jesus, but I ain't going there myself. Wow. Like a seed that bounces off the soil rather than going in and taking deep root and bearing fruit and transforming their lives, their hearts were too cold, too hard, too indifferent to let the word of Christ go down, take root, dwell in them richly, and transform them to say yes and receive and respond to the invitation to come. Let them adore him, the newborn king. Such incredible access to God, God's word, and yet they missed out on participating in the exceedingly great joy of being in Jesus' presence. And so how about you this morning? Where do you find yourself among the people in this morning's scripture? Have you, like the scribes, grown somewhere in your life cold or indifferent to the presence and the person of Jesus Christ? So much so that maybe you can quote the scriptures, study the scriptures, teach the scriptures, but not let the word of God sink so down into your heart that you personally experience the joy. You personally come to his presence in worship. You enter into the goodness and mercy and forgiveness and grace of the one whom the Bible is pointing to. I love what Psalm 16 says, you make known to me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It's so sweet to be known by God, loved by God, and to be in Jesus' presence. Amen? Amen. May we not miss that this Advent season and let a knowledge of the Bible uh, cause us to the Bible is pointing us to in Jesus Christ. Our participation in the very life that the Bible is pointing us to in Jesus Christ. And so, one of the things that I find remarkable about this passage, you know, when you're trying to talk about joy, you can say they had a lot of joy. Or they had, what are you, what are you trying to say when you, when you want to communicate they had joy and they had it like overflowing? And I love the way that the writer, that, that the Gospel of Matthew says it. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's a great way to put it, isn't it? They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy when they were in Jesus' presence. What, if anything, is holding you back from enjoying Jesus and spending time in his presence? What about, like King Herod, has the throne of your life become so full of someone or something other than Jesus to the point where there is no room for his rule and reign over you or over some significant area of your life? The tragedy of Herod is that he's so full of himself that there's no room for Jesus. And the tragedy of the religious leaders is that they're so full of indifference they have no time for Jesus. No room for Jesus on the one hand, no time for Jesus on the other hand. How about you this morning? And what is it about Jesus Christ 
that causes wise men to travel such a great distance, no matter how much time or how much it costs them, just to worship and be in his presence. Some people think that it might have taken the wise men up to 40 days to get there and to not get there with just a few people. I know because there's gold, frankincense, and myrrh, a lot of people think there were three wise men. We have no idea how many there were. And they might have traveled with a huge caravan. The Bible says that Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. So if it shook up the whole city, there might have been a huge crowd that came their way. But regardless, the travel from ancient Babylon to Israel, about 800 miles, if they travel about 20 miles a day, it would have taken them 40 days. What would make them go at such great cost? And then not only to to give up so much of their time, but then to be in their presence, rejoice in Jesus' presence, rejoicing exceedingly with great joy, and then gladly surrendering costly treasures of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Glad surrender. What is it about Jesus that makes it worth it, no matter how much time, no matter how much it costs? In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells us a very short parable about the kingdom of God. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Imagine you're you're digging in a field one day, and your shovel just goes thud, and you hit something under the soil. And so you dig it up, and you dust it off, and you open up this box, and in that box, you find a treasure that is worth infinitely more than anything you've ever owned or currently own right now. So much so that in the joy of finding the treasure, because you saw a for sale sign in the lot when you were working in the field that day, you said, you know what? I'm going to put this back in the ground, sell everything that I have, because nothing that I have right now compares in worth or value to the thing I'm holding in my hand right now. This is the picture of the parable that Jesus is sharing. What would be so valuable that you'd give up everything for? And one interpretation of this parable is that the treasure is Jesus Christ and his kingdom. That the man who sells everything he has is Jesus' people. People who have come to know Jesus by faith. That he is so precious, so good, so beautiful that he's worth giving up everything for. And he's worth giving up everything for. And so we have come to know him as the good shepherd, guarded by his protection, who lays down his life for the sheep, led by his spirit like the wise men who were led by the star and before whom we gladly surrender our treasures, just like they surrendered theirs of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I love how the Apostle Paul describes this experience in Philippians chapter 3. He says, Whatever gain I had from the things he used to find his worth and value and identity in, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. In other words, what I used to have is worth nothing compared to the treasure that I have in Jesus. Does your heart sing that song this Christmas? But the other way of looking at the parable, and a lot of Bible scholars go this way with it, and this is beautiful. The other way of looking at the parable is that the man who sells everything he has 
is Jesus. And that the treasure that he had found in the field is his people. And that the kingdom of heaven is like a man who found his people and said, I would liquidate all of my assets just to have them as my very own treasure. Isn't that beautiful? In the Old Testament, God calls his people his treasure. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his earth. Treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And Peter picks up on some of that language talking about you and me, the church. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And so Jesus, in his joy, goes and sells all that he has and buys the field so that he could have the treasure. Hebrews 12 tells us, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And part of that joy was seeing you saved. In his joy, he went and sold everything that he had to have you be in his treasured possession. Isn't that good news? That he loves you that much? Tim was worth that much to me. Pastor John was worth that much to me. Aaron was worth that much to me. Matt was worth that much to me that I would go to the cross and sell everything that I have for your sake and for your salvation. In wrapping up this morning, there's a phrase in there, and we've been talking about it this whole time. The Magi come to King Herod, and they say, where is the one who was born king of the Jews? And sure enough, that wasn't a title that Herod should have claimed or took. And haven't we claimed or took things that weren't our own either? We've claimed and taken things that didn't belong to us, and praise God, Jesus died for those sins too. And so, king of the Jews, the next time you hear that phrase, if we were to follow through the book of Matthew, the phrase king of the Jews on the mouth of Gentiles, the next time you hear it is when Jesus is on trial. And Pontius Pilate says to him, are you the king of the Jews? And then he hands him over to be crucified. But just before he's crucified, there are Roman soldiers who are beating Jesus and mocking Jesus and spitting on Jesus and putting a crown of thorns over his head and they're pretending to worship him in mockery. And they're saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And then they nail him to the cross where there's a sign hanging over his head. And the sign reads on it, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. See, all of the story points forward to Calvary where Jesus went to the cross for your sins and for mine, for our sake and our, our salvation, to lay down his life and to sell everything that he had to have you as his treasure, to have me as his treasure, that we might receive and respond and come before him, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so this Christmas, may you show up to the Nativity Word of God. May you join the company of people who have received and responded to the Word of God. May you receive and respond to the invitation to come and behold him, born the King of angels, born the King of the Jews, born King of kings and Lord of lords, who died for our sins and who rose again, who loved us and gave himself for us that we should no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died 
and for our sake was raised again, the one who totally has time for you and totally has room for you. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, as we continue in a posture of worship, we bring before you the places in our lives where we have been the Herods and the religious leaders in our own hearts. Cling to some tre- we bring before you the places where we rather cling to some treasure that isn't really a treasure at all, or some title that is something less than being called a child of God. Lord, we renounce those titles and treasures this morning before you, and we thank you, Lord, for giving us a better treasure, a better title, your own body and blood shed on the cross, broken for us. God, thank you for dying for us, for rising from the dead. Thank you for pouring out your spirit and giving, giving new life to us. Lord, we pray uh, that at the start of this Advent season and throughout the whole thing, we would live in a continual posture of receiving and responding to who you are and what you've done, because you're worthy, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.